to Churchpreneur's Podcast. My name is Richard Moore. I'm your host and informant for everything church, theology, and faith-related. Churchpreneur's vision is to accelerate the church in mission, vision, and effectiveness and fulfilling the Great Commission in our communities. Churchpreneur's hopes to embolden people to fulfill the Great Commission beyond their own borders into the rest of the world within this generation. In this podcast, I talk about everything that's moving me in relation to church and theology, hopefully to empower you and your ministry, church, Bible study, theological understanding, and most importantly, your personal growth in Christ. Hey, all you churchpreneurs out there. Uh, Today, I'm going to be dealing with the Rediscover Bethel podcast series. So Bethel Church in Redding, California put out a series of six podcasts trying to help listeners rediscover what Bethel's about, their DNA, their teaching, their theology, their practices. And uh, in my previous episodes, I've dealt with episodes one through five. And in my most recent episode, I dealt with episode six, but I couldn't deal with all the material in it. So today, this is part two of episode six, my review of episode six. And in episode six, Bill Johnson, Dan Fairley sitting across the table from each other discussing um, all sorts of things. And in this episode, they title it by themselves. It's their title on the episode is Church Structure, Teaching, and Politics. And by that politics, they don't mean church politics. They mean politics, politics. So, um, yeah, so I'm going to start dealing with um, where I left off from last episode. If you you want to, you can go maybe just get the last uh, ideas of those at the last episode and see where we left off. And uh, so at the, I'm going to try to give you timestamps so you can follow along as well with where these things were said in the video by them. And uh, so here we go. I'm jumping in right at the one hour and one minute mark. Um, I'm going to review what they've said. And uh, this is, again, episode my review of episode six of Rediscovering Bethel. I'm starting at the one hour and one minute mark from where they left, from where I left off from my last review. And they begin to start talk about how diversity in their church and other thoughts are allowed. The context from my previous episode was they're talking about cults and how cults behave and how um, groupthink is not part of what uh, they do at Bethel. And I kind of show from my last episode that it is what they do. And they do have cult-like leanings and practices and behaviors. So at the one hour and one minute mark, they're handling this topic still of diversity in their church, diversity of thought, and et cetera. We're not a cult, they say, uh, because of how others, other thoughts are allowed. Uh, And if you happen to deny the divinity of Christ, we'll make sure that we maybe have to talk to you about that. Likewise, if you deny the Trinity, we'll have to have a talk. So, of course, these guys would not openly deny uh, any of the cardinal doctrines, right? Uh, they would not, in, in open defiance, speak against the deity of Christ, you know, like to say something like, Jesus is not God. They wouldn't say that. They would more subtly put it in their books, like I've shown in previous episodes that Bill Johnson does teach that Jesus laid aside his divinity. Um, So they're not going to come out and say, like, I don't believe in the Trinity, or I don't believe in the deity of Christ, or I don't, Jesus was not God. They're not going to say those type of things. They're not going to deny the cardinal doctrines. Um, But subtly, 
and in underlying ways, they do erode those cardinal doctrines. Chris Vallotton has written about it. Bill Johnson has written about it. Um, and I don't know uh, how much Dan Farrelly has written about stuff. I don't know his writings very well. I will admit uh, my, mainly my interaction with him and in his, any of his teachings is this video series. Um, so I can't comment on his teachings, um, but in this video, they definitely stand in line. Dan Farrelly's teachings stand in line with Bethel theology and practice, no question. They certainly hold on to those cardinal doctrines um, and say they believe them and their statements in their statements of faith. And, and even in this series, they do say they believe the cardinal doctrines, but um, they also at the same time erode the divinity of Christ and, you know, sort of put us at his same level, at Christ's same level, so he can do the same miracles that Jesus did. Um, Bill Johnson just said Jesus laid aside his divinity. It's still in his books. He said in this series that they're going to take that part out of his books. You're not going to recant that statement. They're just going to remove it because it's caused such a controversy. So whatever that means, um, it says it in more ways than one that Jesus laid aside his divinity too. It's not just that he said it one time, and written it one time. He's preached it. He's taught it. He's said it in interviews. He's said it in books on more than one occasion. And so, but in the one book, he does say, um, uh, the uh, when heaven invades earth in this series, he said he's going to have that removed in their next printing, I guess. I'm not sure. Doesn't really say what or give the specifics of that. But um, it's sort of like, well, you know, that was that just caused such a stir. So we're just going to kind of slowly take that out. Um, yeah. So, and again, laid aside divinity. Um, people say, well, you're taking that out of context. The context is clear. Go look at it for yourself. We're not taking it out of context. He is describing Jesus laying aside his divinity so that we can do the same works that he has done. We're not taking it out of context. And furthermore, that statement does not work in any context. Unless the context is what I'm about to say is false teaching and heresy. And then you say, Jesus laid aside his divinity. And what I just said was false teaching. <laughs> That's the only context that that works in. doesn't work in any other context. So we're not taking it out of context. Go look at the statements in his books. And it's not just that one statement in um, When Heaven Invades Earth. It's more than one. It's several passages where G he, he diminishes the deity of Christ so that he can lift up the abilities of man so that they're sort of on the same level and that they can, you know, um, we, can, we can compete basically. And we can do the works of Jesus, the miracles, not just the works. And again, that passage in, um, you know, when Jesus says that these works will you do and more and greater works, um, because I go to the father, that's not what that's talking about. Um, I have a video on that as well. You can, um, check that one out to their credit. Let's give them credit here. Um, Johnson does say they'd have to talk to someone if they started to deny the divinity of Christ. So he's going to talk to himself. Is he going to have a little powwow with himself on that? And like, let's say, you know, Bill, we shouldn't, we shouldn't really um, deny the divinity of Christ. <laughs> Maybe we ought to recant those things in our books and in our preaching and in our statements. But no, they, <laughs> they do it. They preach this thing. They teach that 
Jesus laid aside his divinity. So he says out of one side of his mouth that we're going to have a talk with someone who denies the divinity of Christ, but then they do it in their books, their teachings, and their practice. It's, it's, uh, it's two-faced. It's definitely double-tongued. Um, and he says they're not a cult because they do this. Everyone is allowed to have diverse and, and you know, different opinions. But when it comes to the cardinal doctrines, we'll, we'll, we'll step in and we'll say something to you. But they don't, they don't do it for themselves. So people are allowed to have diverse views, not just on, on you know, religion and faith, uh, all the way up to, you know, denying the cardinal doctrines. But people are also ha- allowed to have political views, Black Lives Matter. People voted for Biden and people voted for Trump in, the, in their congregation. Um, but that's interesting. That's not what the critics are talking about. That's not what w- we don't say you're, that they're a cult or cult-like because they have, you know, they're one-party uh, church. We're not saying that. I don't, I don't, I've never heard anybody critique them for being a one-party um, church, and that's why we think they're a cult or that they're cult-like. That's not – I've never said that. I don't know anybody else. Hey, hit me up if you if you know a video or some, some cr- critic of the movement who thinks, well, they're a one-party church. That's why they're a cult. They only voted for Trump or they only voted for Biden or they're, they're only this or that or the other kind of political leaning, and that's why they're a cult. Um, I've never heard anybody say that. So that's not the critique. So see, again, they set up like this false critique of their movement that we think they're all Republicans or something like that. That I've never heard anybody say that. I don't know anybody who believes that they're a cult because they have one political leaning or another, and they all have groupthink on one political leaning. Funny enough, they do actually have groupthink on one political leaning. You know, I agree actually in a lot of ways in some of their conservative values and some of their their Republican maybe or or conservative leanings politically, but that's not the critique against them. You know, um, you know, why would actually, why would Chris Valentin say, uh, prophesy that Trump's going to be president? They hold that political view. He wants Trump to be president. And so that actually is a manipulation of the, of the whole system trying to get your folks to vote for, for Trump. I mean, (laughs) you know, they didn't, no one, no one prophesied that Biden would win funny enough because they all wanted Trump to win. They're all lean politically conservative. It's what it is. So um, this is not the critique that we have against them, that they somehow, you know, um, hold to to a political leaning and they force their people to have a political leaning, even though they probably do push their political leanings a lot. Um, You know, we think of Sean Foyt, you know, he's a pro... a Bethel uh, person, and he's fully conservative. And I agree with a lot of his conservative leanings, but um, that's not the critique against them that I'm aware of. Please hit me up. If you know someone who says they're a cult because they have a political leaning, then I'd love to see it, but I've never seen it. So that's not the argument. So all in all, they do have a cult of personality. There's no question. They do have groupthink because people come out of BSSM and have their DNA imprinted in them deeply. 
and they are going out from BSSM and are aggressively trying to get that DNA imprinted onto other churches and other places in the world. They're taking their Bethel DNA, their NAR perspectives, theology practice, and trying to push that onto other churches in the rest of the world. It's happening. They do have a cult of personality. They do have groupthink, and they are good at it. They say they're bad at it. They say they're bad at being a cult. If we're a cult, we're bad at it. That's not true. <laughs> they're, they're very good at it. That's why we're coming against them to try to show people that they're doing this and that what they teach and believe is aberrant. They're good at music. Like, look, like if you went to a church, a contemporary church, anywhere in the world, I mean, I just like, like point to a map and like go like, we're going to go to Kansas city and try to visit this and that church. And they play contemporary music. The likelihood that they're going to play Bethel Hillsong or elevation music is very high. I, I dare say if you went to a church, the contemporary church that plays contemporary Christian music where there's a band on stage and they don't play Bethel Hillsong or an elevation song in a month of Sundays, I'd love to see that church. I'll be honest. There's hardly any churches that would not, that make it a rule not to play these music, these, these, these worship music. There are some now that are deciding to say, you know what, we're not playing Bethel, at least not Bethel. They'll still play Hillsong. I have even attended three different churches this month, and each one of them played a Bethel song, a Hillsong song, or a Elevation song. And funny enough, those were churches that have decided they're not going to play that music. It slips in, it creeps in. You can't, you can hardly avoid it because it's so pervasive in the evangelical landscape. And so that's the reason we're coming against them is they do have groupthink. They're good at being a cult. If they are a cult, if they're doing cult-like things, pushing their groupthink on other churches and other organizations, they're good at it. Their music is good. It's, it's quality. It's high quality. Um, their movement is pervasive. It's everywhere in the world. You can hardly escape it. I've been a missionary in Germany for seven years, and it's everywhere. It's literally in every single church that you, that you go around. That's why we're trying to come against them, because they are good at it. So if you're a church that's playing Bethel music, please, please stop. I have a video on that. Too. It's one of my first videos I publish on YouTube uh, with churchpreneurs, and I make a case for why we shouldn't sing Bethel music. So please go have a look at that, um, why we shouldn't use Bethel music and these other uh, organizations and, and their music. So at the one hour and two minute mark, um, Dan Fairley comes up with a story that he thinks he was told where someone walked by someone in the middle of a phone conversation and eavesdropped on a phone conversation. Someone told him they overheard a conversation of someone talking on the phone who said, quote, honey, these people aren't a cult. They just love, they're just in love with Jesus and they're just happy about Jesus, end quote. So Farrelly is using a hearsay story of a hearsay. Like, so he heard someone who heard someone. He heard a story from someone who heard someone on a phone conversation, overheard them talking with apparently their spouse on the phone. 
and maybe they were worried about their child being at BSSM. I don't know. You know, it's it's quite a like third party, you know, third hearing. So he eavesdropped on a story of someone saying they eavesdropped on a on someone on the phone who heard them say it's it's hearsay. All these things. <laughs> I think someone told me this story of this person and it's, it's really funny. It's hilarious to, to say that we're not part of a cult because I overheard someone who said, or maybe someone told me this story. I don't really know. It's just really hilarious. This section, you should actually really, if you want to listen to like how they build their story on a straw man. So they're, they, they'll, they're building, they, they build straw man arguments to knock our arguments down, but they're building a house of cards literally on, I overheard someone who overheard something. And maybe someone told me this story. I don't know. Maybe it was, it's really funny. So go listen to that section. Um, so they basically say, we're not a cult because someone overheard someone who told me maybe a story that that they overheard a parent saying on the phone, no, this is not a cult. These people just love Jesus and they're really happy about it. <laughs> it's hilarious um, that someone had a, and it's funny actually too, that someone had a phone conversation that Bethel is not a cult. <laughs> um, if, I don't know, if you have to go and visit a church to try to figure out if they're a cult, something's off. That's awesome. They don't deal with the critique against them. They just basically say, here's why we're not a cult. They base the fact that they are not a cult on hearsay. That wouldn't be accepted in a court of law. I overheard someone who overheard a conversation that this and that and the other thing. That's hearsay. <laughs> they don't actually give real arguments of why people deem them a cult uh, or cult-like. I don't say they are a cult. I say they are cult-like for sure. Uh, Al, Al Mohler, um, in, in a podcast, uh, about a year ago, I guess when, or maybe it's two years now when, uh, this wake up olive thing happened, he called them a cult. So, um, I mean, they're not dealing with the material of the argument, quoting someone who overheard something, maybe they're not sure, that he's really <laughs> said this or that or the other thing. Um, yeah, I heard it through the grapevine that we're not a cult. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're not a cult because he heard a mother, overheard the mother on the phone with the father, like, yeah, yeah. They don't deal with the critique of the uh, against them. Um, and this is basically the whole series up to this point. This is the sixth episode. They haven't dealt with the material of the, the in the contents of the discrepancies against them, of the critique against them. They don't deal with the contents because they can't. That's the thing. They know they can't deal with the arguments against them. And so they sort of build this, like everybody's t saying, you know, we're not a cult. Why are people saying we're a cult? <laughs> it's not a valid argument um, that you overheard someone, overheard someone, overheard someone. So... And even then, the, the, the argument is these people, so the phone call went something like this. These people just love Jesus and they have joy about it. 
certainly don't you think that Jim Jones and his whole cult, um, the Branch Davidians and every single cult in, in human history, don't you think they enjoyed each other and had joy about it? Now, once they're being controlled at the very end in some of these cult stories, the Branch Davidians and, and Waco and and as well, uh, Jim Jones, they were being controlled and deeply, deeply psychological uh, things going on there. Uh, they didn't enjoy that. But don't you think up to the point that they all flew to Guyana and uprooted their lives, that they were enjoying things and they loved and, and had joy? Of course they did. But people were sucked into that cult with joy. So I'm going to make this a point here. They are using joy and excitement and, and, and look at the love that we receive. I think kids go from here from Germany. If you're a German watching this at this moment, I would like to say to you, don't go there. Please do not send your kids there. They are sucking them in with joy. It's a wonderful place. And Germany is sometimes can be seen as a loveless place. You know, there's not a, there's not full acceptance. You know, there's this term in, in German, there's a saying in German, no complaining is love enough or a compliment enough. And so peop, this is sort of a, sometimes can be viewed as a loveless culture. And so kids are starving for love and acceptance and they go to Bethel or they hear about Bethel or they have someone come from Bethel and they give them this wonderful feeling of acceptance and love. They even, when they step in the door, they have someone prophesy over them that a special future, whatever it may be. You know, I see this thing in you and, and this has got what God's doing in you and he's going to do this and this and this and you're going to just be an awesome, awesome whatever. And they get sucked in with joy and they love bomb people. I mean, that's a cult uh, uh, tactic is to love bomb people. Now we should be loving for sure in the body of Christ. Love, they will know we are Christians by our love one for another, but they do a specific job of love bombing people and they suck you in with joy. Uh, there was an extreme amount of joy in those cults, you know. Um, but at the last minute, let's say Guyana and, and, and Jonestown or Waco and that shootout, they were controlling them. Why couldn't they just walk out the door at Waco? Because of the control that David Koresh held over those people. Why couldn't he, why couldn't they all all the people who were they, he controlled them with joy and the beginning and the freedom that they thought they were having? Look, we know that we know the right thing now. We have this this um, this 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 answer to all of our life's questions, and it's joy. Look how joyful we are. Down to the last minute, those people wanted to be there, and and. and they had joy in being there until they drunk the Kool-Aid or until the FBI was there shooting down their doors. Um, so this is a non-starter. Cults definitely have joy and exhibit joy until they realize maybe a year or two into it or a three into it um, that they're stuck and they're being manipulated and they're being controlled. So even if, you know, I know probably those of you who might be watching have come out of this movement and you felt this way. You felt controlled. Groupthink is happening. Um, you are um, free now from that um, joy that they promised or the joy that they exhibited. It, it does happen. 
So um, it, it's so funny, actually, that, that um, you know, they're, they're making this argument that they're not a cult, um, but people actually call their school Christian Hogwarts. I mean, internally, they call themselves that. Um, people in Reading themselves, people who live there, oh, that's Christian Hogwarts, the school where all those, you know, kids learn how to do magic and stuff. And, and so this, this theme comes up now at this time in, in the video and they say, yeah, Christian Hogwarts, it's, um, I don't, you know, and Dan Fairley pretends like he doesn't know what it is. Wait, wait, uh, what are they? Are, isn't that in the movie Harry Potter or something like that? I don't know, you know, and they sort of equivocate that they don't know what Christian Hogwarts is or what Harry Potter is. I mean, you've got to have your head in the sand if you don't know what Christian Hogwarts is or Harry Potter. Um, it's the most f famous book children's book series in the last 20 years. I mean, give me a break. You don't know what Christian Hogwarts is? Th this is where they, they are not telling the truth. They're deceiving people that they don't know what these things are. Um, and then he says, they call us something like that, don't they? Or, you know, and so he acts here like he didn't know that that's what people call BSSM students, you know, Christian Hogwarts. He's got to know that they call themselves that. It's not like outside people are doing that. People in the inside are calling themselves Christian Hogwarts. I've seen it on Insta everywhere, you know, so he's acting like they don't really know. He's the leader of the school and the students themselves call themselves that. They post it on Facebook. They look on Insta. Look up the Insta hashtag Christian Hogwarts and see what you come up with. I mean, he's pretending here. He's not telling the truth um, that he doesn't know that their own students call themselves that. Plus people in Reading themselves Reading people, Reading residents call them Christian Hogwarts. I mean, he's not being honest. <laughs> I, I, it's almost like he, he doesn't live in Reading. How can he live in Reading and not know that people call them that? <laughs> I don't know. All right, so moving on. I got to move on. At the one hour and four minute mark, Dan Fairley asked Bill, do you think that those who don't live in, quote, signs and wonders don't have the gospel or are they heretics? The question is, first of all, wrongly framed. Uh, first of all, Bill Johnson has said over the years and written that in very clear terms that those who don't have signs and wonders have an incomplete gospel. They preach an incomplete gospel. When there's no miracles, you don't have the real full Jesus. There's no question. In page 27 of When Heaven Invades Earth, I'll read you these quotes here. So the stories of this nature are becoming the norm, i.e. miracles. And the company of people who have joined this quest for an authentic gospel, the gospel of the kingdom is increasing. Loving God and his people are an honor. So increasing miracles and the, mir the company of people who've joined in the quest for the authentic gospel. The authentic gospel is a gospel of signs and wonders, according to him. Page 126 of When Heaven Invades Earth, without miracles... There can never be a full revelation of Jesus. Says it pretty clearly, in my opinion. Page 127 of When Heaven Invades Earth, miracles provide the grace for repentance. So if you don't have miracles, you don't have grace to repent. So how can you actually trust the gospel? How can you believe in the gospel if you don't have grace for repentance? Repentance is the gospel, it's the, it's the message. If you don't repent, you can't be saved. And 
according to him, if you don't have miracles, you don't have grace to repent. And if you don't repent, according to the true gospel of Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved. So miracles are necessary in his view for repentance and thus for the true gospel to be understood and, and adhered to and accepted. Page 127 of When Heaven Invades Earth. It wasn't a complete message without a demonstration of the power of God. It's how God says amen to his declared, his own declared word. So if you didn't have a demonstration of power, the message was not complete. So the message of the gospel cannot be complete. Again, context is king here. It's page 127, 126 and page 127 in his book. This is the context receiving the gospel, receiving the gospel message, you have to have a complete demonstration of power. Otherwise, the gospel is incomplete. From this and his other explanations in his book, it would seem that Johnson believes that whenever no miracle is present or no miracle takes place alongside of gospel proclamation, the message is incomplete. It's hard to not see that. Page 129 of When Heaven Invades Earth, Johnson says people are deceived who use means like Bible study and other Christian religious traditions to understand God, but not signs. He said, quote, we've gone as far as we can with our present understanding of Scripture. It's time to let signs have their place, end quote. There are many more quotes. This is just one book. This is just When Heaven Invades Earth. There are many, many quotes in that direction from Bill Johnson in his sermons. So Dan Farrelly here has framed the question wrong. Do you believe they're heretics? Heretics? Johnson taught and said that people who don't operate in signs and wonder have an incomplete gospel. Those who would not be in the signs and wonders camp. So whatever he says here is deceptive at best and an outright lies at worst. He does believe it. He's written it. He's taught it. Those who don't live in signs and wonders in the signs and wonders camp or who have experienced miracles and manifestations in that way, they aren't experiencing, according to him, the true Jesus, the full revelation of Jesus. Then Johnson's answer goes something like this. He says, I believe the miracle lifestyle is for everybody. So those who haven't experienced a miracle... Why isn't, why isn't that miracle available for them? If it's available for every Christian, as he says, then everybody should experience it, right? If it's just available, it's part of the package. Then why doesn't every single Christian experience miracles, right? So for him, you ha- you, for this, you have to work up the miracles somehow. Why doesn't a Presbyterian, as soon as they trust in Jesus, experience the miracles that come along with the revelation of Jesus? Why don't Baptists just experience miracles? Why isn't the miraculous and signs and wonders a part of the gospel they believe? It's because he believes they're not trusting in the true gospel. And that's why what they teach at Bethel is a different gospel. It's at least a different gospel than you and I have experienced. If we don't experience miracles, then we, according to him and according to their movement, you can't have trusted in the true Jesus. You don't have a true revelation of Jesus Christ. So you're trusting in the wrong Jesus. 
But the truth is, my friends, they're trusting in the wrong Jesus. They're trusting in the Jesus of their own imaginations. They've created this Jesus and the, the idea, Jesus is perfect theology. My question is always with that, which Jesus? The Jesus of your own imaginations? It's like Thomas Jefferson, you know? He created a Bible version for himself with cut out pieces, blacked out pieces, and basically um, said that Jesus was a non-miraculous person. Thomas Jefferson created a um, non-miraculous, non-supernatural Jesus, and Bethel goes the other direction and create it, creates a uber supernatural Jesus. And then, and then, of course, Bill says, no, do I believe they're heretics? No, of course not. And again, that's the wrong question. He links very clearly in his writings and his work that signs and wonders, miracles, and the like belong to the gospel. So, in his own view, that doesn't even make sense. If, 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 if people who are not experiencing signs and wonders are believing the wrong gospel, then they're not saved. At least they're not saved. And if you're presenting a false gospel, according to him, he says it, you're presenting a false gospel. If you haven't give, given miracles their place, then they're false teachers, right? So if Bill actually believes that people who aren't experiencing signs and wonders are, are, not, are not preaching the, the true gospel, then what are they doing? They're false preachers, false teachers, and preaching a false gospel. So it's helpful here that Bethel is interviewing Bethel about Bethel um, because no one would push back on that idea. I know those quotes. I know the text. I know his preaching. His, he has preached that the true gospel only comes with signs and wonders, and otherwise you don't have a full revelation of Jesus. So Dan, Dan Fairley doesn't push him or push back on this at all because he's convinced and he's part of Bethel. So Bethel interviewing Bethel about Bethel. So I would posit to you the power of the gospel is the gospel message itself, not miracles. So Paul writes in Romans 1, 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. The power of the gospel is the gospel message itself, not miracles. But they teach it, they believe it. Bethel teaches it, they believe it. They have shown it in this series that they believe that miracles are belong to the gospel. And if you haven't experienced miracles, you have not experience the full message of the gospel. They believe that message, the, the miracles belong to the gospel. It's part of the gospel. And um, so my question is, how can those who don't haven't experienced the miracles have experienced the full message of the gospel? How can they be saved? So basically, every according to his own teaching, every other denomination that doesn't move in signs and wonders is preaching a false gospel. All you Baptists out there, you're preaching a false gospel. Presbyterians, Methodists, uh, any other Christian denomination, Reform, etc., you are preaching a false gospel according to Bill Johnson, and you need to repent from that false gospel and move to signs and wonders. I mean, what else can be said? Like, he says it in his books, in his preaching, in his teaching. But he doesn't believe you're a heretic. <laughs> I mean, it's just so, so laughable. 
Moving on. I got to move on. So at the one hour and six minute mark, Bill Johnson starts talking about Nicodemus. And he says that the point of Nicod- the Nicodemus story is that that um, we have to teach and do. Teaching and doing go hand in hand. So miracles and teaching go together hand in hand, according to this story but for him. Uh, but he's missing the mark. He's missing the point of what Nicodemus is doing, what, what, what the interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus was. Nicodemus confirmed Jesus was God by saying, you could not have been doing the miracles you're doing without, without being sent by God. You are God, he admits, basically. And then Jesus goes on in that passage to say, you must be born again, born of the Spirit, born of above. And so again, Bill Johnson misses the point of this passage. The point here in John 3 is not that doing and teaching go hand in hand and that we should do and teach. It's that Jesus is God and that he can make you born again by the power of the Spirit. He's sent by the Father and Jesus can, by his Spirit's power, make men born again. He totally, Johnson totally misses the point of this passage. It's all about us, for him, all about us being able to do all that Jesus did. So if Jesus did those miracles and Nicodemus notices it, he taught and he did miracles. Nicodemus noticed that he taught and did miracles. And so we have to do those miracles too. That's not the point of John 3. Sorry. You must be born again, born of the spirit and born from above. That's the point. At the hour and seven minute mark, then Johnson says, Jesus didn't just talk about, quote, divine health and not make people healthy. Remind me, Bill, uh, where did Jesus talk about, quote, divine health? I don't, I cannot even imagine one single place where Jesus said the words divine health. So again, he just sort of creates things on top of other thoughts. So Jesus certainly healed people. But I don't know that he ever talked about divine health. I can't think of a place. Um, yeah, he just made this up. Um, he made people healthy, and then he says he taught about divine health. That actually, to me, sounds a little bit new agey. Like the word, the, the concept divine health, I have never seen that phrase in the Bible. I, I'm going to have to go look it up now when I'm done filming here. I can't remember a place where any scriptural author talked about, quote, divine health. Help me, help me out. Hit me in the comments if you've known any scripture where it says the phrase divine health. That's a new age concept. So at the 107 minute mark, Dan Fairley says a pet peeve of his is demanding conformity. We don't demand conformity here. Um, and he goes back to this cult concept. Are we a cult? We don't demand conformity. Dan Fairley throws the ball in the other person's court, in the critic's court, you know, and that the critics demand a conformity. And then he says, well, then, quote, well, then who's the cult? If you guys demand conformity, the critics demand conformity in your critique, then who's the real cult here? Um, It's a really underhanded slap at those who critique them, saying that they're not a cult, and then saying, well, you guys are cults, actually. It's just, these guys are really just great. So at that 107, I'd love to hear what you think about that 107 minute mark. Um, He basically says, anybody who's a critic and demands conformity and critique is a cult. Uh, So (laughs) it's funny. Um, And then he talks about there are some 
33,000 denominations. Of course, that number is conflated big time because of the worldwide denominational affiliations. There are thousands of denominations in Africa alone. So because of the millions of people in Africa and, and all across the world, there are tons of denominations because there are millions and millions of people. So fairly in that same moment, uh, talks about the anointed leaders idea again. Um, and we know that there's, you know, this, these people were anointed who started denominations, but it, there's no extra special anointing. Again, look up 2 Corinthians 1, verses 20 through 22, and 1 John 2. And it describes that every Christian who is in Christ is anointed. So denominational leaders were not anointed like he's meaning they're anointed. That did not happen. They're able to start a denomination because they're anointed. He's wrong about that. And they are wrong about the anointing. It's a construct they've created. It does not exist. Every Christian is anointed in Christ. You have the full anointing you need. You don't have to have an extra special anointing. It does not exist. So, um, and so it, because of that, they believe they're special leaders and there's an extra special anointing and they have it and they can transfer it to you. At the one hour and nine minute mark, Bill Johnson talks about eating meat is biblical. He just makes a statement that eating meat is biblical. And I surmise that he's talking about the eating meat sacrifice to idols passages. Uh, these guys leave out big chunks in context of scripture and don't explain what they're talking about. Um, it, it, it is sort of a biblical concept. You know, Jesus made, you know, uh, all foods clean. Um, and Paul talks about meats sacrificed to idols. And he totally throws this whole idea and this meaning into another direction. You know, it's a tailspin into their own interpretations. Um, then he goes on to saying, well, eating meat is biblical, but if I know that you're not okay with it, then I won't do it. The guy has no idea what Paul is talking about in eating meat in general. Paul isn't talking about eating meat just like from the grocery store. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about meats sacrificed to idols. It's just like over and over again in this whole series, these guys show that they have no idea about what the text of scriptures are talking about. Eating meat sacrificed to idols would make someone stumble into idolatry and going back to the market and saying, oh, well, look, Joe Christian, my buddy, invited me over to his house last night, and we had some meat that I know was sacrificed to this idol. And look, there's that type of meat we had the other night. So if he did it, then maybe I idolatry is okay. That's what it's talking about. <sighs> Just not that eating meat in general is okay. Sure, eating meat in general is okay. And it's, you know, but if it, but he's saying, if eating meat's gonna make my brother stumble, then I won't, you know, then I. That's not what it's getting at. It's talking about the weaker brother who might stumble into sin on account of what we would do. <laughs> These guys have no idea what the text of scripture is about. Secondly, they forget the huge detail of the texts that they mention and they don't, don't mention them. Third, they get them wrong completely 
or completely get a wrong interpretation. So he, Bill Johnson says that these, these ideas are about respect and honoring them at their house. That that's what unity is about. You know, I'm going to, that these, that these ideas, the the scriptural ideas that Paul's talking about with meat sacrifice to idols is about unity. That's not what it's talking about. There are passages on unity, certainly, but this one where Paul talks about meat sacrifice to idols is not about unity. It's about not making your brother stumble, which I guess in the end maybe could be extrapolated. Again, it's an extrapolation of an extrapolation to point to unity, brotherly unity. I'm going to be unified with this brother. I don't want him to stumble, but it's not directly about unity. It's about making, looking out for the needs of the weaker brother. So if you know something, something makes another brother stumble, then abstain from it. You have freedom in Christ, but you're not freedom to make your brother stumble. So they make stuff up. At the one hour and 10 minute mark, Farrelly goes on to expound on Bill Johnson's false interpretation of meat sacrifice to idols. It, it keeps going. You know, This was all about limiting freedom for the sake of your brother. So I limit my freedom for my brothers. And he goes on to talk about how Paul says, women are not to teach, quote unquote, or quote, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. That's found in 1 Timothy 2.12. He actually takes that from the Passion Translation, funny enough. So he, Dan Fairley, quotes the Passion Translation interpretation of this text. So the Passion Translation is an aberrant, theologically loaded translation of the Bible. It's not an accurate translation. And the Passion Translation says this in 1 Timothy 2.12. I don't advocate that the newly converted women be teachers. So he changes, uh, Brian Simmons, who's the Passion Translation author, changes this to say, instead of, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority, he changes it to, I don't advocate that the newly converted women be teachers in the church. So the Passion Translation inserts this word, advocate. Um, There is no sense in which that word could be translated as advocate. The BDAG defines this word, this Greek word there, um, for permit as ipotripo is the Greek word, and it means to allow someone to do something, to allow or permit, to give permission. Whomever he permits or appoints gave permission. Something is being permitted, but nothing could come close to this word advocacy. There's no way it could be translated as advocate. Brian Simmons inserts the word advocate instead of permit, and by doing that, he is gravely mistaken. Brian Simmons has changed the text of Scripture to say something that Paul did not write or mean. No honest Greek scholar would translate epitripal as advocate. Dan Fairley here is using the Passion Translation for this text to read it before you as the listener, and he falsifies the word of God. He may do it unknowingly because he may believe honestly that the Passion Translation is a proper translation, but it's not. So in this, they they err 
err gravely. This is a grave error. So when they talk about this in the episode, they say that Paul means that because of the current crisis and, and the situation, we should, I would appreciate, you know, if you would limit your right to teach. You have the right to teach, but just limit yourself. Meaning it was only at that moment in time where women should not be teachers and preachers in the church. So again, false interpretation, wrong interpretation, improper translation of the Bible. Uh, it's just not in the text. He can't stretch it outside of to that meaning. It's just not there. It's He superimposes his opinion onto the text. And here in doing so, he falsifies the text. So a hermeneutical principle is... Um, that the scripture interprets itself. You have to moor your interpretation to the text. You can't rip the text out of its context and then put your meaning onto it. Or in this case, take a word out like Brian Simmons does for the Passion Translation and put a completely unrelated word in its place. The Greek does not give us permission to do that unless you're making an opinion piece which is what the Passion Translation is. It's an opinion piece and not a good translation of the Bible. So they do this all the time, and they superimpose their ideas onto the text. That's called eisegesis. Exegesis is pulling the text, pulling the meaning from, without, from within the text out. Eisegesis is superimposing your perspective onto the text, and that's what they do here. And they do that consistently. The one thirteen minute mark, the hour and thirteen minute mark. Johnson says that Heidi Baker really challenges his thinking and stretches him. And so again, another linkage, another connection to the NAR and its core people. Heidi Baker's a part. Heidi Baker's given quotes for Shayan in his books. Um, He's connected deeply to Shayan and has connected to Peter Wagner when Peter Wagner was alive. There's just the list of speakers at Bethel. They're all connected. They be, they're in this camp. Not a single one of the, the teachers, as I showed in the previous episode, uh, are in the mainline evangelical camp that they have invited to Bethel. I didn't see a single Baptist or Presbyterian in their lineup. Uh, they, they, they don't, they're not diverse. They invite their camp to their facility to preach, to teach. Um, so I didn't even notice anyone like it sort of in the middle of the road, like Andy Stanley or someone who's sort of like the middle evangelical spectrum. I didn't even, there's none of those people. They don't invite anybody else outside their camp. They're claim they're ecumenical and they claim they have a broad spectrum, but they don't not at Bethel church. Now in the broader NAR, there might be people going to certain, conferences, but at Bethel Church themselves, they do not have an ecumenical, broad, diverse theological input from people outside their own movement. Look at the list yourself, Bethel TV website, go to their list of speakers. They're not out. There's no one on that list outside their movement. So at the 114 minute mark to 115 minute mark, Bill Johnson says the reason that uh, the critique or the critic um, thinks that way or, or responds with critic is because they're raised that way. 
And it's just the way they were raised. So I understand why they would think that and why they would view that, have that view or hold this and that view kind of in opposition to us. It's because they're raised that way. So they have the, the critic has no really, no other way, no other possibility than to critique the person because they're, they've been raised that way. That's the way they've been taught. They bury, they've been raised. Um, and it's just, it's so funny. Um, you can't, you can only, you only disagree with us because you've been raised that way. If you've been raised a different way, maybe you would agree. <laughs> like it sort of minimizes the critics view, first of all, um, because they really have no other way to think. It's just sort of the way they're raised. And so you understand. So he shows again, how understanding he is to like, you know, see that, oh, that's just the way they were raised. So that's why um, it's condescending. Uh, these guys are really good at condescension. You know, oh, they're just raised that way. You can be patient with them because that's the way they're raised. So it's like, you know, like, sorry, I'm, I'm a redneck, so I can get it. Like, like you like go, oh, those poor rednecks, you know, that's just the way they're raised. So that's how they think. That's how they act and behave and believe. So those poor rednecks, I mean, you know, it's super condescending, you know, that's just the way they're raised. It's like, you know, and if you know anybody watching from the South, you know, they'll say, oh, bless your heart. You know, <laughs> that's, that's saying, that's saying you don't know any better. You know, you dummy, um, you know, poor, poor, poor dummy. You don't know anything. <laughs> so, oh, bless your heart. You know, if you do something really stupid, you know, these grandmas in the South, they're going to say, oh, bless her heart. You know, she's trying, you know. <laughs> So that's what this is saying. This is saying they don't know any better. Bill Johnson basically says, those critics, you know, oh, bless their hearts. <laughs> These guys are good. They're really good at condescension. You know, they really have got it down to like an, a fine art, you know, how condescending they are. So at the one seventeen minute mark, Bill Johnson says that there are certain people who perceive them this way and they don't like us because of this, that, or the other thing. And he says, it's, it's really just too much work to try to convince them otherwise. So do you mean like releasing six two-hour podcasts to try to convince them otherwise? Is that, is that too, I mean, like that kind of convincing? He's talking in a damage control podcast to try to convince people otherwise that they're really neat people and just awesome and lovely and wonderful and not ever addressing any of the critique that's held against them. It's laughable, man. It's just hilarious. They're not going to deal with it because it's too difficult. Then why record this 12-hour podcast series? If it's too difficult to convince anybody, then why even try this? Why do this? <laughs> it's really funny. They're not going to try. It's just too difficult to try to convince those critics out there. We're not even going to try, except that we're going to record six two-hour podcasts um, so that I have to waste my life trying to unravel them and understand these guys. <laughs> like, it's just, I can't believe I'm spending my life on this, honestly, because these guys are so double-tongued. It's just really awesome. I do have to say it has been a quite an entertaining process listening to these guys try to do damage control for 12 hours. Um, it has been a very uh, inane attempt at damage control on their part. They just are really, really bad at damage control. Anyways, I mean, I don't know who can't see through it. I, and they ha 
on this podcast series, there's only positive comments. I mean, maybe there are negative ones here and there, but um, 40,000 views, it's damage control, and it's entertaining, at least. <laughs> I, la- I laughed a lot. So at the 117-minute mark, 117, 30 minute mark, Farrelly says that Bill Johnson has grace and patience for those who are critical of him. This is just hilarious, man. He says, quote, you're a better man than me, my friend, end quote. And just, it's just a comical. Bill Johnson has no patience for critique or the people who critique him. You can even see it like on him in this episode. He does not want to do this whole episode. All these episodes he's done, I guess he's done, uh, this is the fourth one now. Chris Valentin did two, he did four. So again, I think I quoted it in my last episode. He doesn't want to answer the critique. He doesn't want anybody to pull him away from his first love. He does, I wonder how they actually kind of finagled him into doing these episodes because you can tell he doesn't want to do them. He doesn't want to answer any critique at all. So it's really funny. They actually have these damage controls things at all. Uh, I, I'm going to call it uh, the Rediscover Bethel Damage Control episodes podcast. So that's um, <laughs> the damage control. You ever watch? Hey, have you guys seen the Rediscover Bethel Damage Control podcast? <laughs> uh, because he doesn't. He doesn't even like answering critique. Don't waste his time. And you can see here he's in this section. He's kind of like. Really, this little section. I, I don't want to waste my time with these guys' critiques. It's just really funny, you know. These, you know, he's basically saying, "Oh, bless their hearts, those critics." You know, it's um, it's, they're just born that way. You know, I could talk Southern. Let me talk some Southern real quick. Bill Johnson, Southern. It's uh, oh, bless their hearts, those poor little critiquers. They just were born that way. You can't, they can't help themselves. It's just, oh, bless their hearts. <laughs> I love it. So at the one eighteen minute mark, he talks about people who leave their environment. Why do they use such wacky, non-normal, abnormal, peculiar language? Why don't they just say people who leave our church? That's, you know, that that's... That's what we're talking about. This is just abnormal. Do they have an environment there? I mean, do they have like a uh, a bio greenhouse or something? Is that, I mean, what are they talking about? People who leave churches, they don't leave our environment. Do you have like an ecosystem or something that you're trying to protect your environment? I don't, like, I, don't I leave your environment it's such peculiar language. And you actually know, like you can, if you talk to a Bethelite that comes from Bethel or comes from the NAR, if you talk to them for a few minutes and they're, they use this peculiar language, you can pin them in a minute. You know, um, they talk about destinies and all this Bethelese, all this NAR dialogue. And I actually have an episode on NAR buzzwords, if you want to check that out. And they use all this language and leaving their environments and stuff like this, all this is just really peculiar language. You know, they've created their own sort of, literally their own sort of bioeconomy where they have a totally different language, a totally different dialogue. Their jargon is not even normal Christianese anymore. You know, hit the Christianese like um, 
a hedge of protection or what are some other Christianese, uh, you know, uh, cleanliness is next to godliness, or we're going to come alongside you, or all these Christianese, you know, the funny things that we sort of say as Christians. And this is like Bethelese. I've got an episode on NAR buzzwords, so go check all that stuff out. Um, they just make stuff up and sort of create their own language ecosystem, and it's even further further afield than Christianese. You know, that's gonna I'm going to call it Bethelese. So. No one else speaks like this. You know, what are they talking about with environments? Leave our environment. You know, they, they're talking about leave their church. So people leave their environment and, um, yeah, they're going to other not as good environments. Actually, it has that sort of in it. It's built into their language is people, when they leave our environment, they've left the safety of this awesome, beautiful environment. They're going to other strange environments, you know. So at the 118 minute mark, Bill Johnson says that people who left, if there's something that we carry, then I hope they got it. Again, the peculiar language comes out. What do you mean? I mean, are they are they carrying backpacks? Are they carrying things around their church? No, they're he's what he's talking about is they carry the presence of God. And he believes they carry the presence of God. He says, I hope they got what we carry, meaning the presence of God. I hope we could give them our awesome presence of God that we carry here. It's a peculiar and elite language um, that that's Bethelese. It's this, it's this, you know, we carry something that 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 we hope that we can, you know give further to another church, to another. So if they are here in our environment for long enough and they, we give them what we carry so that they can carry it as well elsewhere and carry it. So it's, they're actually missionizing and um, missioneering other churches, other environments for their purposes. So if we hope they got what we carry, that they can take it with them and take it to another environment and carry that, that presence that they've given them to someone, then um, they can pass it on. So Johnson's wife, Benny, says there are thin places. There are places where the space between heaven and earth is thinner than other places. So I, I don't know how thin, like, I mean, is it, is it this thin or is it this thin or, you know, how thin is the... <laughs> the place, space between heaven and earth. And of course, Redding, California is one of those places where the space between heaven and earth is thinner than other places. So come here and you're going to get the presence of God because God doesn't have as much work to do to get through that, that uh, thin place. You know, there, there's a thin space between, but it's not so thick that God can't quite get through that thin place. So because Reading has a thinner place, because Bethel is a thinner space between heaven and earth, God doesn't have to work so hard to get through. You know, it's almost like there's some sort of ozone layer. You know, back in the day when we talked about uh, these cans, these hairspray cans that had this thing in it that was creating a creating a hole in the ozone layer. And uh, so apparently there's like a, a thinner space, sort of a ozone layer above Bethel where the space between that and that ozone layer is thinner, you know, and, and so God can get through easier, I guess. Um, it's just wonky, man. It's wonky theology. 
God doesn't have to fight to get through a, a space between heaven and earth. His presence, he is omnipresent. He's everywhere. There's no place where his presence is more than another. And um, you don't have to take his presence away from Bethel. You don't have to go to Bethel to get his presence. And you can't take his presence away from Bethel. He's not a God that can be manipulated by man. He is the eternal creator of the universe, and you can't manipulate him to your own ends. Sorry. You can't take, you can't go get some, some presence from Bethel, and you can't take that presence away from Bethel because it's not there. God is omnipresent. So at the one hour and 20 minute mark, Fairley brings up their church split again. So Dan Fairley then says that people who left the church were on the verge of violence, which I am sure is an over-exaggeration. I, I cannot imagine that people were ready to be violent to the people who were. So what happened? Let me just explain what happened. Bill Johnson came. He got. He went to the Toronto Blessing and got the anointing, and he came back and he started spreading his thing, right? And the people who were there from Bethel previously, it was an AOG church, an Assemblies of God church, for the longest time, they were charismatic, but this was one step too far for many people who were part of the congregation. They started getting antsy and what, what's going on, and so it, it caused a split. But the people who left, I cannot imagine that they were ready to purport violence on the people who were changing things, namely Bill Johnson. I, I cannot imagine. Can you imagine someone's ready to go to fists, throw fists with, over this thing and get violent? Again, they're exaggerating. They're not telling the truth. I cannot imagine anybody in this church split that happened years ago, um, probably in the early 90s. Oh, no, see, it happened. They left the Assemblies of God denomination in 2006, so probably the early 2000s. I'm just guessing. I don't exactly know, but this church split where he says half their congregation left. Half of the congregants were ready to purport violence on the others who were bringing this Toronto blessing thing in, it's just not true. I do not believe him. Um, so he mentions their church split, uh, and then he called it a church split in 1995. So I have my notes here. Sorry, I correct myself. It was probably the 90, mid-90s, and um, he called it a split in another episode as well, and he called it a church split here again. He said that basically overnight, the whole power of the Holy Spirit hit and many people were uncomfortable with it. That's why the church split. Again, he's blaming those people. They don't know how to deal with the power of the Holy Spirit, so they left. It's really interesting. They talk about it um, and that it's caused this kind of rift that they've been on the bandwagon for the last 20 years, and it has caused such a huge rift that people left and boy, I tell you, it would be very interesting to get a few of those people who left Bethel Church just to interview them, just to talk to them. I don't know if you're if you are part of that church at that time in the early mid '90s and left. I'd love to talk to you. Um, so reach out, hit me in the comments, whatever uh, you know. Uh, send me an email. I'd love to talk to you. So. Um, yeah, um, there was a church split. At the one hour and 21 minute mark then, Bill Johnson says he continues to have a relationship with one of the main ringleaders of that church split at the time, or one of the people leading the charge. 
he tries to correct himself uh, saying the ringleader might be a good, not a good term. I thought that was interesting. Uh, so he corrected himself. That's good. He's trying to be um, politically you know, sensitive and, and not call them names. And one of the people leading the charge, he said. So I'm going to try to meet with him coming up here soon now. So Bill Johnson, one of the main ringleaders or people leading the charge of the church split years and years ago in the mid-90s, He's going to come, he's going to meet with him coming soon. So he still has a relationship with the people who basically split off from their church and they were good friends apparently. So that's interesting. Um, Bill, of course, puts himself out there looking really good here. See, look, I'm really going to honor these people, even though they left our church. You know, we're so awesome or we're such great leaders. We're kind people that honor those people, even though they split from us, even though they were about to ready to be violent. I mean, he comes across looking really squeaky clean. Wonderful Papa Bill. I mean, it's you know, I'm really, really uh, kind to those people who hated us and, are, you know, the ringleader. I'm going to reach out to them. Um, so and apparently in this split, he took thousands of this ringleader or this this person leading the charge that he's talking about, uh, took thousands of people with him. Apparently uh, is, is what he what he was intimating here. This guy, he has a relationship with him still, who was one of the main people who pushed the church into a split. Um, wow. I thought that was interesting. So I'd like to see where that goes, but of course they won't talk about that details. Um, so an hour and 20 minutes and 30 seconds, uh, he uses this extra special language again, this weird jargon. Dan Fairley says, that's just the quote grace on this house. So again, it's this weird and peculiar language. There's grace on this house. That's just some extra special grace that God gives to their house, particularly. Again, it's a church, not a house. Um, grace on this house. There's grace on things. There's grace, you know, there's this sort of this hovering grace that's on their house. There's no extra grace on their house. God gives grace to everyone in abundance. Listener, if you're looking, if you stuck with me this long, there's no extra special grace. You have the grace that you need for today, for your moment, for your life, for your salvation. All the grace that you need is to be found in Jesus Christ and him alone. You don't need to go to Bethel to get the grace that's on their house. There's no extra special grace. God gives it to everyone in abundance. There's no extra special anointing. No one has an extra special power. There's not a special thin place at Bethel. There's no thinner. I've been there. I didn't notice a thin place between heaven and earth. It was not there. There's no extra special grace. The building itself at Bethel is an old gym. I mean, there's not, there's not an extra special grace on their house. It doesn't look like a house. Actually, it looks like a converted gym. There's actually hoops hanging up. Like we know when you put a hoop up, a basketball hoop, it's an old gym. <laughs> they don't have an extra special grace on that house, that old converted gym. They just make stuff up. These type of euphemisms and jargon, it just nobody talks like this except them. And they have an extra special grace, but they don't. There's grace for you in Christ Jesus in abundance. 
Everything you need is to be found in him. At the one hour and 22 minute mark, Johnson describes how one of the former board members of their church um, just left without any kind of reason why they had a chance to reconcile. And he talked to him for a long time. Johnson then said he asked him about this or that or the other thing. And he said that he explained to him and the guy was like, they explained to him what happened or what was happening or what had happened in the past. And the guy said, quote, oh, well, I always wondered what that was about, end quote, and made it like there was just this one thing that people left over that was their totally inconsequential reason people left and they just didn't understand. And, you know, at the time there was, um, you know, this just one kind of thing that was a little, little thing. And he just explained and he said, oh, I was always wondered what that was about. And... <laughs> He sort of minimizes the problem, makes it a one-problem issue, and the problems that the mainstream evangelical church has with Bethel, its teaching is clearly, clearly documented, documented, clearly delineated. Uh, it's not just one thing that we have a problem with. They just don't deal with the problems in this, epi in this episode or in this series. And then they make it look like, oh, it's just that one thing. You know, this guy, this board member, he just had a problem with one. It's a misunderstanding, you know? There's just this one thing that people had problems with who are opposed to Bethel. Those people who are critics of the movement, it's just really one thing that they have problems with. It's that we sort of really pursue Jesus. That's what they have problems with. <laughs> it's, we're not upset with that. That's not the case. I mean, there is mounds and mounds of evidence and things that the critics have exposed and, and are opposed to. And it's just lots and lots of evidence in their own books in their own writings, in their own sermons, they don't deal with the critique, actually. They basically say it's just this little story. It's this one anecdote where this one guy, my board member, you know, he, he didn't like what was happening. And if I just explained it to him, it was all good. That's not what's happening. Um, we're really great people. And, you know, they're just upset if, 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 there's this, if we just explained it to them. You know, if they just watch this Rediscover Bethel series podcast, it'll all be good. That's not what's happening. Um, they don't talk about the critique. They don't talk about the problem. And I'm actually eight minutes away from ending this whole series. And I still have not had an answer to the question. I have not had an answer to any of the questions, any of the critique. They don't deal with it. They don't answer the questions. They don't deny that they have taught the things they taught. They actually confirm the things that they have taught. I'm eight minutes away from the ending of this series, and they have confirmed every single thing that they have taught. They have confirmed every single thing that the critics have held out against them, myself included. They believe it. They believe it, and they hold to it. So they, they minimize the critique by saying, basically, back then when the Holy Spirit hit us hard, you know, um, there was just this one issue, really, and the board member that had the main issue, um, we just talked about it and said, like, you know, that was what this was about. He's, oh, that was what it was about. Okay, that's then this water under the bridge, you know, no problem. Bill Johnson sort of intimates that he made good with all those people back then. You know, we're, 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 we're working on it. That's all. It, we're friends now, you know. I'm friends with the ringleader and the, and the person um, who who I reconciled with them. The main board member who had an issue, we just explained it, and oh, well, that was just a big misunderstanding. 
I mean, he comes out really looking really good. Like it's scot-free, like, you know, all that stuff. That was just, that was just one issue. There was nothing, there was nothing there, you know, even though it was, I mean, Dan fairly talks about it as a church split. It was a big deal. Thousands and thousands of people left. And then in the, and then 2000, they left the denomination. No, in 2006, after the Assemblies of God published the paper, the position paper that basically called out all the things they were doing. Um, they left in 2006, left the denomination in 2006. So it was not a non-issue. It was not, not a thing, right? They had a church, huge church split. And apparently they were on the verge of violence. I mean, Dan Fairley says they were on the verge of violence. And so it was not, not a thing, it was a thing. It wasn't like, oh, well, it was just one thing. If they just understood what was happening at the time, then they would have been cool. But that's not what's happening. And that's not what's happening at churches here in Europe. There's churches being taken over by this movement. And the people who are opposed to the movement are not opposed to the people. That's not just one thing. They're opposed to the theology, to the practice, and to the teaching of this movement. It stands in opposition to the true gospel of Jesus Christ, and it stands in opposition to the scriptures. That's what we're against. That's the, that is the critique. So at the end of that section that they're talking about where he re reconciled with this board member, Bill Johnson it said, when I saw what he was carrying, again, it's this, you know, this board member apparently is carrying the presence of God. Um, then I had to sort of just, you know, reconcile with him. So he was carrying the presence of God too. When I saw what he was carrying, I just wanted to reconcile just um, because he was carrying that. I mean, it's, it's bizarro. Their whole lingo and jargon is bizarro. It's like this, you know, we've entered the twilight zone. Um, and this, this language and lingo that he, that he talks, uses, it supports their theology. And then they express sort of that if you've left, that's great. We bless you, but I hope you're still carrying what you received here. I know that carrying that presence, you know, I hope you still carrying that. So funny enough in this, um, current climate, I'm sure you've heard the term virtue signaling. So it's, so the lingo that Bethel uses when people leave Bethel and they, you know, still hold on to that language, that jargon, that lingo, that, that specific NAR buzzwords and stuff like that. It's sort of a virtue signal, you know, like, look how spiritual I am. I still use the lingo, you know, I was in the atmosphere, you know, when I was at Bethel, I, I, there, they had a special grace on that house, you know, and I'm carrying that grace. Now there was a grace upon me from the house. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I carry what they, what they, you know, and, and I'm bringing the, the presence and all this stuff. So they, they, they take their NAR speak and it's sort of a virtue signal, funny enough, you know, the next and, and last section um, in this series is about politics. And at the one twenty four one hour and 24 minute mark, Johnson says, quote, every act of obedience of a believer releases presence and power. Again, this fits right into their dominion theology, your work, your engagement in the culture, in the world, you can bring or you can release the presence of God into situations. Uh, when you do it, when you cast your vote, for instance, when, when he's talking about voting in this context, you, quote unquote, release presence into the atmosphere, into the environment or whatever. Uh, you release the power of God, you release the presence of God, you release 
It's a nonsensical joke. There's no biblical precedent for such a thing. You should be engaged as voters. As Christians, we should be, every vote counts and all that stuff, right? Um, you should be engaged in the politics and the world and, and having a Christian worldview. And your vote counts, certainly, but your vote does not release presence and power. I'm sorry. You're not that powerful. Um, it's an unbiblical joke. They keep making stuff up. There's no biblical precedent for such a thing as when that vote goes in the ballot box. They don't do that anymore. I guess you have to like, <laughs> there's no hanging chads anymore, right? You don't press a thing through a thing and you just touch it on a screen, I guess. So there's no biblical precedent for such a thing. You don't release power anywhere. God's power and presence is everywhere. He is an omnipotent, omnipresent God. You can't release power or presence by your vote. He's not in prison that you need to release him. This is word of faith theology at its core. You don't release anything. You don't control God in any way, shape, or form. He sets kings up. He brings them down. God is the sovereign God of the universe. He sits in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. You don't release his presence by anything. You can't release him. He's not in a cage. He's not bound up. You don't have to cut his ropes. He doesn't need your help. This is a dominionistic perspective. It is clear as day. Johnson then tries to to be profound, and he always tries to drop this awesome NAR knowledge and drop some sort of like, you know, like drop it like it's hot, you know, but it's not really, it's bad and it's heresy, you know. Um, you please understand me. Don't, don't get me wrong. You should be engaged as a, as, as a, in politics. You should be, do your best to affect the world for the gospel and for the glory of God and vote but your vote does not release anything. Your vote will hopefully get the candidate elected that you would want to vote for, but it doesn't release anything. It's wild. The hour and 26 to 27 minute mark, Johnson repeats that voting is an act of obedience. And when I do it, I release something. He says it again. Again, awful theology, awful releasing something in the atmosphere. Yeah, sorry. He already said it. Again, he just kind of repeats it. It's interesting, actually, in this section on politics, they uh, don't mention that Chris Vallotton clearly prophesied that Trump would be reelected as president. It, and notice they didn't bring it up here. It's, it's uh, glaringly absent from this section on politics. Trump was the candidate for uh, president, and they didn't bring it up. Uh, they didn't bring up his, they don't apologize for his false prophecy. They don't, they don't even speak about it, right? Um, that would have been maybe appropriate in this section on politics. I guess not, though. Um, they tried to manipulate by Valentin prophesying that Trump would become president. That's a that's a, a, a political ploy. Honestly, it's basically trying to get your constituency in in the NAR and at Bethel to vote for Trump. So, and that prophecy went out to the nations. It didn't just stay. It's it's went out to the people in their house and in their movement and every thousands of people saw that it wasn't just, it didn't stay in their house. It didn't like, it wasn't like he said it in a private conversation or prophecy. He prophesied and it was broadcast to hundreds of thousands of people. And so that's, you know, political manipulation, honestly. Now 
I would, if someone asked me my personal opinion, I would say who I'm voting for, and I would ask them to maybe vote for the same person, um, because to, to think about issues that affect Christians, um, and you should vote vote your faith as well. So, but it's you know they don't bring that up here that he basically tried to swing the vote uh, for for uh, Trump by prophesying that Trump will be reelected. Notice again, glaringly, nobody prophesied in all these false prophecies about Trump being reelected this time. Nobody prophesied that I saw that Biden would become president. And why? Because they're trying to swing your vote. Of course, they're trying to get you to vote for Trump by prophesying that Trump will become president. (laughs) Glaringly obvious and it's very absent from this section on politics. It might have been good to have addressed that here, but again, they don't. So then at the 129, 20-minute mark, Johnson talks about you're not really allowed to um, say anything or speak into anybody's life until you have relational equity with them. So basically it feeds into their ability to quash any type of critique because no one's allowed to critique them or anyone else unless they have relational equity, meaning... You must know me. You must honor me. You have to honor me. And we've got to have a mutual loving friendship before you get to come around and and say something about me or about my teaching. And basically what this is saying, we're not going to give anybody the time of day who doesn't have a relationship with us. So how are you meant to actually have a relationship with him? If you have something that, you know, um, with his teaching, you can't critique it unless you have relational equity. Um, how are we meant to do that? How are the crit- critics are meant to have relational equality, re- equity with Bill Johnson? Um, is he floating his phone number out there on the internet so we can just kind of email him and talk to him? Um, are we, can we zoom, zoom him? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's unrealistic. Um, and that's not the, the pattern of the new Testament. That's not the pattern. I mean, Paul wrote letters saying, rebuke this guy, you know, this false teaching is unacceptable, and that's the pattern of the, of the early church. They made councils to make sure that Arius, Pelagius, and all these other heretics of history were put in their place publicly so that no one would accept their false teaching. That's the public pattern of public discourse. You put out public statements on public teaching that is trying to become, Bethel is trying to become a worldwide power in evangelicalism and take over. It's clear as day. Uh, you get that from their music. Their, their church would not be what they are if they did not have their music go global, and it just wouldn't be. So I guess uh, all those critics of Bethel and the whole movement, you have to have relational equity with him before you're allowed to critique him in any way. This is impractical. It's impossible. And again, I think in my past episode, I talked about Matthew 18. It's not a Matthew 18 issue. Bill Johnson has not sinned against me. Chris Vallotton has not sinned against me personally. They have publicly taught false teaching, which is allowed to be critiqued. That's what the New Testament writers did. Every single New Testament book, maybe outside of... um, I don't know. Actually, I can't think of a book that's not about uh, heresy or correcting some kind of problem. In Galatians, it's the Judaizers. You know, in every single New Testament letter outside of the Gospels, but then Jesus corrects a ton of stuff. I mean, every single book in the New Testament is a correction about, there's corrections about something. 
and public corrections. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him. Stay away from him. It's a warning. Romans 16, verse 7, you know, uh, yeah, it's Romans 16, verses 17 and on. It says, those who oppose sound doctrine, mark them with a mark, you know, mark on them. You got you to gotta know their name to be able to mark them and avoid them. I mean, you know, you don't have to have relational equity to be able to critique somebody. So that's, um, that's wrong. On this theme of Matthew 18, um, and going to that person privately, that Matthew 18 does not apply here. D.A. Carson um, wrote a big article on Familios on how Matthew 18 does not apply to public teaching. It applies to private sins between people in a church uh, where you actually have a personal connection with that person. You're able to reach out to them, um, and they first of all, they, first of all, they have had to sin against you. Then you're, secondly, you must have connection or contact with them. They must be in your church, your, your personal church. And then you would be able to excommunicate them in the end when you take those elders with you and the person does not repent. That's not what Matt, this is not what Matthew 18 is about. It's Matthew 18 is not about public teaching. Bill Johnson's not in my church. He didn't sin against me personally. I don't have a way even to reach out to him. I tried to reach out to him, and I was kind of stopped at the gate at the door by the gatekeeper. I couldn't excommunicate him from my church. It would be impossible. Uh, he doesn't uh, belong to my local church, so Matthew 18 does not apply. Relational equity does not apply here. Reaching out to him does not apply because he's a public teacher. He's publicly critiquable, <laughs> quote-unquote. He's publicly critiquable. He has written books. He's taught publicly. And the books are meant to spread the teaching. Well, that's why you write a book. You write a book so people will adhere to your teaching. He's written books. He speaks at conferences all over the world. And he does that so he can spread his teaching. So he, he is a critiquable figure. Um, and his books are critiquable. So um, if Johnson doesn't want to be a public figure, then he should stay in his own lane. If he doesn't want to be critiqued, then he should stay at his church. Don't try to spread your brand of Bethel globally, which is what they're doing. It's all over Germany, Switzerland, and France here in our area. It's everywhere. It's overrunning churches all over the globe. So we're trying like the boy who saw the hole in the dike, you know, to stick our finger in the dike and stop the dam from bursting all over Europe. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to mitigate the move of Bethel into places all over Europe, all over the globe through organizations like Awakening Europe. Awakening Europe is a European uh, organization that has Bethel leanings, not just Bethel leanings. Their leader is a Bethel missionary, was trained at Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, and was sent out and was a pastor there for many years on their staff. And he is a, as they say, a son of this house. So that's more Bethel terminology. And they have called him a son of the house. He's the leader of Awakening Europe. They have partnerships with Christ for All Nations, um, Lifestyle Christianity, Todd White's organization, Bethel. They have official partnerships with those organizations. And so it's spreading everywhere. This type of life, this type of ministry and theology is spreading across the globe. And so 
this this last episode has mercifully come to an end. And at the end, they talked about cat videos. <laughs> that it's that it's easier. At least it ends on a light note, and it's funny. They said at the end, it's easier to post a cat video. So at the end, they have a moment of levity. Um, it's easier to post a video, a cat video on Facebook um, than to have any kind of meaningful interactions because you don't have relational equity with those people. But cat uh, videos, people like cat videos. So you should just post that instead. So anyways, um, they, they say basically you have to have relational equity with people to engage them, but it's easier to post cat videos. So go do that. So <laughs> uh, don't go post cat videos, post my videos. So that this message can get out in conclusion uh, for me, I think the Bethel people have put this series out. They are who we thought they were. They teach what they thought that we thought they teach. They practice the practices that we thought they practiced. And they are who we thought they were. My visit to Bethel actually in 2020 as well confirmed for me that they are who we thought they are. And my judgments of them, my critique of them are solid biblically. They, again, in this episode, in these episodes, they haven't addressed any of the critique, the real critique. They've maybe addressed the critique they think is the critique against them, but it's not the critique. So in conclusion, they are who we thought they were. They teach what they th we thought they teach, and they are to be avoided. This episode, the other previous six, uh, five episodes of this Rediscover Bethel series confirms for me that they are an organization, a church, and all the teachers there are to be marked and avoided. Please don't sing Bethel music. Please don't invite Bethel speakers. Please don't show, display Bethel speakers. Please don't use Bethel material. Please don't buy Bethel books. If you have to buy the books to see what they teach, then okay. Please don't support their ministry, their church in any way. Avoid them. And thus, the Rediscover Bethel series has mercifully come to an end. <laughs> Can I get those hours of my life back? I wonder. <laughs> no, it was very worthwhile. I'm kidding. It was very worthwhile. I'm glad I could do it to give you guys the information to show you how Bethel and the NAR deviate from Orthodox Christianity. And so I hope it was helpful for you in the end. This is it. That's the Bethel series on Rediscover Bethel. Pass it on if you can. There are six other episodes. So this will be seven episodes altogether. So pass all these things on to people who would be interested. I know it's a lot of material, but they produced a lot of material. I mean, they produced 12 hours of content. So this has been about 12 hours of content as well. So thanks for tuning into this episode of Church Entrepreneurs Podcast. You can find out more information at my website at richardpmore.net. I also blog at richardpmore.blogspot.com. You can follow me on Twitter if you still do that kind of thing and you haven't been canceled yet. My handle is at richardpmore23. You can also email us at churchpreneurs at gmail.com. That's the word church and entrepreneur smashed into one awesome combination. 
I'd love to hear from you. If you have any ideas for a podcast or any comments or questions, please reach out on one of those platforms. God bless you. Until next time, take care. Take care.